0: Come now to God's Word, and I invite you to open up your Bible with me first to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 7, but I want to read as uh, some background to this chapter, Genesis chapter 1 first. We'll read God's Word, and then after uh, we read, we'll pray before uh, we come to the sermon. So Genesis chapter 1, very first chapter of the Bible, it says in verse 26, on the sixth day, And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We're going to turn now to Daniel chapter 7, the last of the major prophets, following Ezekiel. And as you turn there, just to remind you of of some of the uh, uh, things we've said before, we're in our third uh, sermon from this chapter. And we've previously looked at uh, Daniel's vision in terms of the various symbols that are presented to Daniel's eyes, and we've taken it sort of scene by scene. The vision opens up with Daniel beholding these four monstrous beasts arising out of the sea. The sea is symbolic of the nations, always moving, always raging, always opposed uh, to the work of God and uh, symbolizing the kingdoms of the world and the city of man. And how out of that sea arises these four beasts that represent uh, various um, kingdoms and various kings that would come on the face of the earth. Some have understood these four beasts to correspond with the uh, Babylonian kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom, uh, the kingdom of Greece, and then ultimately the kingdom of uh, the Roman Empire. And uh, we had said how these kings and their agenda is all about undoing the good creation that God has brought about. In the beginning, God said that all things were very good. And the agenda of these beasts is in opposition to God, an agenda of de-creation, to take God's good order and his good work and to twist it against God in opposition to him. The second scene, as you look out into the sea raging and the chaos all around us, the second scene brings us heavenward, where the Ancient of Days is in his courtroom, and he enters his room, takes his seat, and pronounces a regal, authoritative judgment over against the beasts. In contrast to the sea below that is raging and chaotic, the heavenly scene is surreal, and the heavenly scene is at peace, and there is calmness. And a sense of control in which the Ancient of Days judges the earth. Though the seas rage and the kingdoms of the world totter, God remains sovereign over all things. And now we've come to think about not only God's judgments against the beasts, but also his giving of a kingdom to one like a son of man. And we'll say more about this son of man later. And, but notice specifically what is given to the son of man is dominion and a kingdom. Echoing, as we're going to say more about later, echoing what is uh, man's original mandate in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the whole earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over it. And we're going to see how that is fulfilled in this son of man. So Daniel chapter 7, we'll read uh, through... <clears throat> Uh, verse 18. This is the holy and inspired word of God. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings and the beasts had four heads and dominion was given to it after this i saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong it had great iron teeth it, it devoured in broken pieces and stamped what was left with uh, with its feet it was different from all the beasts that were before it and it had 10 horns I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in the horns were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's a great comfort to God's people, especially during Daniel's day as they have been sent out into the ocean, as it might be, into the raging sea. They've been brought captive uh, into Babylon and find themselves tossed to and fro all throughout They've been whisked away from Jerusalem, from the city of God, from his land, and now again they find themselves out at sea in the midst of the nations raging. And in the midst of that, God speaks to his people through his prophet Daniel of this vision of great comfort and of great peace for his people And not only was this vision great comfort and peace for God's people in Daniel's day as they found themselves in the midst of the Babylonian Empire, but it remains great comfort and great peace for God's people today, even for Messiah's Reformed Fellowship in the midst of the sea of New York City, in the midst of the sea of this world. And so the comfort that we have here is found as our gaze, as we've talked about last week, and our eyes are raised heavenward. But when we've become so focused on the sea around us, and all the news outlets play on that, right, the, the fear and the terror, the panic that we should all have within ourselves... That's what the news outlets, of course, are going to play on and draw our attention to. But the church and Messiah's Reform Fellowship ought to have our eyes raised higher, raised to the things that are above, raised to the ancient of days who remains seated upon his throne. He's one presented as an elderly person, as one who is the ancient of days. The beasts are of limited days. The beasts come and the beasts arise and the beasts go and they're killed. But the Ancient of Days remains sovereign over the seasons and the times. He is the one who stands over all of them and in regal coolness issues his decrees that must be fulfilled on the face of the earth. It's only then as we look to the Ancient of Days by faith today that we will remain at ease and in control of ourselves and of our church though we are living in the midst of the sea of nations, always on the move, always on the prowl. And part of that comfort comes as we are reminded that the Ancient of Days will judge the kings of the earth, that the kings of the earth, as those who make um, and possess great power on the face of the earth, are not autonomous, and they're not laws unto themselves, they're not independent, but are ultimately accountable to the God of heaven. They will give an account to him. And though, as we're going to talk about uh, in more detail next week, regarding that little horn, um, we'll say more about the destruction of the kingdoms. But we recognize that that destruction ultimately comes when God removes the kings from the face of the earth and sets up a new king, a different kind of king who's pictured here in symbolic terms as one like a son of man, whom we're going to focus on uh, today. In contrast to the beasts, monstrous, deformed, um, opposed to God, raging, foaming at the, ma- at the mount, a contrast to those beasts and those kings is one like a son of man. As the beasts counterfeited the, the creation mandate given to God's people uh, in the beginning to exercise dominion, they counterfeit that dominion by exercising it against God for their own glory and in pride and love of self. But God will rip the kingdom from them, judging those kingdoms. And in the midst of them, he will establish a new kind of king, a different kind of dominion that is not a counterfeit, but the real deal, the genuine fulfillments of Genesis 1, verse 28. And so as we think about that king today, This one, like a son of man. There's five things we want to note about this son of man. First, a description of him. Second, his dominion. Thirdly, his relation to David. Fourthly, him being destitute. And then fifthly, his destiny. So we'll repeat those as we go along. But five uh, things to consider um, from uh, this description of the son of man. And beginning with that description. And so as we said, the Son of Man appears in contrast to these beasts, in contrast to the kings of the earth that devour and the kings of the earth that seek to build a name for themselves. King Nebuchadnezzar was, of course, uh, the prime example of that. We've read about in previous chapters in Daniel. He was a king who desired to make a name for himself. Remember, when he was walking on his palace rooftop, and he looks over the kingdom of Babylon and the city. and He says, look at this great Babylon that I have made for my name and for my glory. He speaks representatively of the kings of this earth and the kingdoms that arise on the face of this earth. But in contrast, one, like a son of man, it says in verse 13, uh, we read of his description. It says, With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Now, two things about his description here. First, he rides to the Ancient of Days into his courtroom on the clouds of heaven. Again, symbolic language. But this language all throughout the Old Testament was language that always was associated with God coming to meet with his people. You can read about that, for example, in Isaiah chapter uh, 19, verse 1. Also, if I could read one verse, uh, Psalm 104 uh, speaks of this language, or uses this language. Psalm 104, verse 3 says that God makes his messengers winds, rather, uh, going back a verse, he lays the beams of his chambers on the waters, he makes the clouds his chariot, he rides on the wings of the wind. Right, this is a description of God himself riding on the clouds of heaven. And so what is this one like a son of man doing on the clouds of heaven? Well, this picture of him approaching the ancient of days begins to teach us that this one who is to receive the kingdom in contrast to the beasts is unlike the beasts in that he shares in the divinity that belongs to God Alone. He is a divine figure who is coming and approaching the Ancient of Days. He is riding on the clouds of heaven. But not only is he a divine figure, but again, he, his description as one like a son of man brings to the fore the picture of the first man, Adam. Adam made in the image of God. And so not only is he a divine figure riding on the clouds of heaven, but he is one also who shares in the humanity. Of the saints he will come to represent. Note it's very interesting that when Daniel asks for the interpretation of this dream of the one standing by, notice that in the interpretation, nothing is said about this Son of Man. Rather, what's spoken of are the saints of the Most High. Notice what it says in verse 18. It says, in this interpretation of the of the vision, the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom, and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Well, which is it? Is the son, is it the Son of Man who approaches the Ancient of Days, who receives the kingdom? Or is it the saints of the Most High who approach the Ancient of Days and receive the kingdom? Which is it? Well, it seems that the Son of Man is one who represents the saints. In the same way the kings um, represent their kingdom, so the Son of Man represents also the saints of the Most High. And more than just representing them, there's a bond, there's a union between the two of them. So for the Son of Man to receive a kingdom is for his saints to receive a kingdom with him. That's part of this description here. And so the one like a Son of Man is a divine figure riding on the clouds of heaven, but he is also one who shares in the humanity of the saints of the Most High. He is one who is truly God and truly man. The Son of Man, ultimately, as we have come to know him, is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. Throughout Jesus' ministry, as he begins his ministry, and that even throughout his entire ministry, the title that he most uses to describe himself to the people around him is the title, The Son of Man. And that title is drawn primarily from here, Daniel Chapter 7. Now we're going to say more about the irony of that title as Jesus bore it in his earthly ministry in the midst of his humiliation. But here we see that the Son of Man who approaches the Ancient of Days is none other ultimately than the Lord Jesus Christ, the very Son of God who took on our humanity to identify himself with us. But he identifies himself with us not that he might repeat the sin of the first Adam, not that he might join us in our bestial opposition and pride to God, but rather that he might restore humanity. He might restore his people to what God has originally called us to do. One author had said this, that the humanity of the Son of Man signifies the opposite to all overbearing pride before God as found in the beasts. It is submission to the divine authority. And on the basis of this, he is invested with regal power and glory by the Ancient of Days, right? We had said in a number of sermons prior that the name Daniel means God is my judge. And we often hear that, and we often think um, only God can judge me, as if it's just a mentality that I have that nobody else can judge me, and I can simply do uh, what I want. But When we confess with Daniel's own name, God is my judge, we are confessing that the judge of the earth, the one whom we acknowledge, who has authority, and whose decrees matter and win in the end, is our God. God is my judge. And that plays itself out even here in Daniel 7. As the beasts are judged, though they raged against God, And the kingdom is given to one like a son of man. Earlier in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel gave us this great principle saying that God, the God of the heavens, is the one who removes kings and sets up kings. And therefore, when we acknowledge God as our God, it's not simply license to live however we want. But it's an acknowledgement that the decrees of our God and his judgments are what matter and what will ultimately stand in the end. And we see this again with the Son of Man. And so we've seen his description. And secondly, as we've been moving into this point, his dominion. You'll notice that the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And then verse 14 says, To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What is, given to the ancient, uh, what is given to the Son of Man is the dominion that was originally given to man in the beginning to exercise it not to make a name for themselves but that they might spread the glory of God over the face of his creation, over the face of the world. And Jesus Christ, as he is the son of man who receives this dominion, then stands up further in contrast to the beasts. The beasts exercise their dominion to oppose God, to devour his people. But the dominion given to the son of man is one exercised not for his own glory, but for the glory of the ancient of days. Unlike the beasts who are aggressive in taking, the son of man receives from the ancient of days dominion. And in him, this dominion is given to his saints to live for God and his, and his kingdom, to live for his glory. Now, why is it important for us to draw out this contrast, to see the difference between the dominion of the beasts and the dominion of the Son of Man? And the reason is because God's people are often tempted to desire a kind of dominion that the kings of the earth possess. God's people are often tempted to desire a kind of dominion that the kings of the earth possess rather than a dominion that is different and stands against it. This temptation is not new, but rather has been with God's people from their very conception of having a king. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, God had raised up the prophet Samuel and and the, the people of God approached Samuel demanding a king, desiring a king. But notice what it says, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 through 7 says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the, king, but, this thing, uh, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. That's an interesting event in Israel's history. Because if you read in Deuteronomy chapter 17, God had given Israel prior to this instructions for having a king and what that king ought to do and how that king ought to live. And so why is God displeased with this when they ask for a king? Because they ask for a king like all the nations, The temptation for them was to have a king that exercised a kind of dominion like the nations around them. And that, again, remains a temptation for God's people even today. But to desire a king like the nations around us, to desire a king who operates like the world around us, is, as God said through Samuel, ultimately to reject him as king over us. And therefore, it's important for us to see the difference between the dominion of the beasts and the dominion of the Son of Man. He reigns in a different manner, in a different mode, with a different end and purpose in sight. There's interesting language I've been hearing uh, going around regarding the notion of Christendom, which I think is very silly language and unbiblical language. Christendom seems to desire to take the beasts here and clothe them in Christian garments and call it a Christian nation. Uh, Christendom takes the statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream uh, back in chapter 2 and tattoos a cross on it and says, here's a Christian nation. I think this language is unhelpful and it is dashed against the stone of the Son of Man here in Daniel chapter 7, who does not reign like the nations around us. The kingdom of God is not one that is perceived unless one is born again. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus said to Simon uh, Peter, who confessed that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the King, he said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And therefore, we ought to recognize that the kingdom that God is establishing is not the mere annexing of the nations into his kingdom, but their destruction and the setting up of a different kingdom, the kingdom of the Son of man who rules differently than the nations. Now you'll notice his dominion is one in which the peoples and nations and languages are brought in to serve him, as it says here. But the kind of kingdom that he establishes is different. In many ways, the call to Christendom is a desire to go back before the Reformation, to undo its insights into the spirituality of the church. And in many ways, though it's not explicit, it makes its bed with Roman Catholicism in the end. And therefore, we stand against that on the basis of the Son of Man whose kingdom is different from the kingdoms of the world. His dominion is different. The Apostle Paul sees this, for example, as uh, this Jesus Christ himself says at the um, end of Matthew's Gospel after being raised from the dead, in fulfillment of this vision here, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and I'll go and make disciples of all nations. He's bringing the peoples out of all the nations to himself. And as the, as the Son of Man fulfills the creation mandate to exercise dominion, the Apostle Paul then sees that today as the church goes out proclaiming the gospel and people are brought in to the kingdom of God. So, for example, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul says this, and notice the way Christ's dominion is exercised today through his gospel. Paul says this regarding the Colossians, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing. It's language that is drawn from Genesis 1.28, the creation mandate. Be fruitful and multiply. The gospel is going out, bearing fruit and increasing as people are drawn out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God's beloved Son through this gospel. That's what Paul says later in verse 13. He has delivered us through that gospel as it multiplies and it increases and it bears fruit. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. sin. All right, so the Apostle Paul sees the ministry of Christ today and the fulfillment of the creation mandate through the Great Commission as the gospel goes out, bears fruit and increases, And the people of the nations are brought into the kingdom of God to experience a new, different kind of dominion. Not the bestial dominion of the kingdoms of the world, but the true dominion given to one like a son of man. So that's the dominion of the son of man. The third thing we want to think about is David. And we'll combine these for the sake of time. The third and fourth point, David and the Son of Man destitute. and will begin with him being destitute. When Jesus comes on the earth, where he proclaimed that the kingdom of heaven has been brought near, and he says, yet in the midst of that, he takes to himself the title Son of Man. For example, he says in Matthew 8, verse 19, he says, um, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, what an odd picture here. The Son of Man, one who approaches the Ancient of Days to receive a kingdom, has nowhere to lay his head. And this is the irony that is revealed to us here in in terms of how his kingdom will be established. That his kingdom will not be established in the ways that the kingdoms of the world have been established, Think of Alexander the Great, swiftly conquering nations with a powerful army, right? That's how nations conquer nations um, in the world. But rather, the Son of Man, his kingdom will be established, not in the ways that the nations are established, but through his humiliation in obedience to the will of God. By laying down his life, the Son of Man will take up and receive dominion and glory And a kingdom. Paul reflects upon this in Philippians chapter 2. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. And being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. It's on the basis of his humiliation that the Son of Man will receive dominion and glory and a kingdom. And this ties into David, right? The son of man destitute, the son of man humbled to receive a kingdom ties into David because David patterns the the way in which the son of man was to receive the kingdom. The son of man is none other than a son of David. And he receives the kingdom in the same way David received the kingdom. If you want to establish um, a good eschatology, a biblical eschatology, read 1 and 2 Samuel. It provides you with the pattern in which the Son of Man receives and establishes his kingdom. And it's interesting at the end of 2 Samuel uh, chapter 23, how David describes himself in his final words. Chapter 23 of 2 Samuel uh, verse 1 says, these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse. The oracle of the man who was raised on high. And I love that description of David, right? The man who was raised on high. Because he is recognizing that he has been raised not in his own strength and not by taking the matters in his own hand, but but entrusting himself to God through a period of humiliation. God determined to remove The kingdom and rip the kingdom from Saul and give it to David. And David, rather than in that moment taking the kingdom into his own hand, suffers at the hand of Saul. He endures a period of great humiliation, even being um, exiled from the land of God. And yet it's through this humiliation that David was raised on high by God. David patterns, the way in which the son of man, the son of David, would receive the kingdom. Humiliation unto exaltation, cross unto crown, and even as the son of man represents the saints of the most high, so too that is the way in which the people of God enter and receive the kingdom. By bearing our crosses, following Christ, We are on our path and on the way to receiving the kingdom. So David patterns the way in which the kingdom is received and established, not in the strength of one's hands, not by taking matters into our own hands, but being contrary to the kings around us, those who entrust ourselves to God, and that through cross-bearing the kingdom of God is established. Richard Gaffin had said this, The church is not on its own or abandoned. For in its state of humiliation, its exalted Lord is present in the power of his spirit. Already, not just in the future, he is active as head over everything for the church. And in its suffering, his resurrection life and power are being perfected. In our weakness, God's power is seen. One of the clearest places the Apostle Paul teaches us this is in Romans chapter 8 verses 35 through 37, where he speaks of the church enduring tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. And yet Paul then says in Romans 8, verse 37, in all these things, not after these things, but in all these things, in the weakness of our flesh, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And therefore, we are to be those then who look to the pattern of the Son of Man, following the pattern of David, of those who go from humiliation to exaltation, those who go uh, from the cross to the crown. Read one more quote from Richard Gaffney. He had said, just there in in Romans 8 is the locust, the place presently, until Christ returns to usher in the age to come in its full finality, of the church's surpassing conquest. For Paul, the sufferings of the church and the success of the gospel are directly, not inversely, proportional. The the success that the church is bound to have in discipling the nations will not eliminate those sufferings. Rather, that success will be realized only through those present-time sufferings. Recall again the evangelizing principle of 2 Corinthians 4, verse 12. So death is at work in us but life in you. According to Jesus, his disciples will not have drunk the last drop from the shared cup of his suffering until he returns in his consummate glory. With this point, Paul the apostle and his person and his ministry and his theology fully agrees. Until Jesus comes again, this point the church evades at the risk of losing its identity this point the church avoids at the cost of failing to be faithful to its Lord in its mission in and to the world. The Apostle Paul brought the gospel bearing fruit throughout the world through the sufferings that he endured, through the shipwrecks, through the stonings, through the beatings. All of it was for the sake of the gospel, and through it and in it he was more than a conqueror, and so too with the church today as we go in the power of the gospel. We come then to our final point. We've spoken about the description of the Son of Man, his dominion, him being destitute as and pattern after David, and finally his destiny. Where do we find the ultimate fulfillment of this vision in Daniel chapter 7? Where do we find the ultimate fulfillment of this vision? We have said that it, it 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 points us to the Lord Jesus Christ, but when do we find its fulfillment? Well, as Jesus took the title to himself in his first coming, we know that the kingdom given to the Son of Man, and the vision here has been inaugurated today. Christ is today king. Christ is today seated at God's right hand beyond the sight of his people. But the ultimate fulfillment of this vision waits until Christ comes again at the end of the age. It has been inaugurated and will be consummated when Christ comes again. As Daniel looks out into the future to see the Son of Man coming and receiving a kingdom, he sees it in one large event, one moment in time of him receiving the kingdom. But as it has unfolded in history, the Christ has come first to suffer, and then again he will come to be glorified and the glory that he possesses as king of kings and Lord of Lords will then be made visible. Often this principle in the prophets is depicted, uh, illustrated this way, as um, you might look out to see mountain tops and mountain peaks, and you might see two mountain peaks that, from far away, seem quite close together, but when you come close to the mountain, you realize that they're actually quite far apart. And so too, as Daniel looked into the future, he saw one like a son of man, and now it is unfolded in two parts as the son of man has come in his humiliation, has been exalted into the heavens, and will come again to consummate his kingdom at the end of the age. It's then that he will make all things new. It's then that he will undo the awful work of the beasts of the nations around us. Those who have been about decreation, Christ will make all things new to the glory of God his Father. And it's then that his saints, his people, will receive with him a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. And therefore, just to come to a conclusion here, Jesus comforts his church not by pointing to the great strength that they might possess here on the earth, But he comforts his church with great hope for the future by reminding them that it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Your reception of the kingdom depends upon nothing other than the Father's good pleasure. And he has revealed that it indeed is his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So come what may, bear what crosses are before us, but know that whatever you endure for the sake of Christ, all of it will be unto the glory that awaits us in the new creation, in the kingdom of the Son of Man, and that it is your Father's good pleasure in the midst of all of that we may endure as God's people to give you the kingdom. It's not the world around us. It's not their pleasure to do so, their desire is to destroy the people of God, but it is your Father's good pleasure who is the ancient of days, whose sovereign decrees will always stand to give the kingdom to his saints. For you belong to Jesus Christ, the son of man, the son of God. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you that you have revealed to us in it uh, your plans uh, for uh, your creation that though the wrongs off seem so strong, you are the ruler yet. And though nations rage and kings plot in vain against your son and his anointed. And yet, Father, we know that you sit in the heavens and laugh. That you are the ancient of days upon your royal throne. And that you have given the kingdom to your son already today. And to be fully realized when he comes again in the clouds of glory. To receive us as people. And Father, to bring with him that kingdom, the new Jerusalem. To descend with him from the heavens. And so Father, until that day, keep us faithful to your word, keep us humble as we receive your word from us, and may your word be a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, that by which we test everything, every opinion, every thought we hear around us. May your word guide us and lead us, and may we see with the hearts of our the eyes of our heart, and not with our, our physical eyes. May we walk by faith and not by sight. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen.